God, even sex. Turning it over in my mind, though, I can't find a moment after that to fix on. August? September? He withdrew, clammed up, grew distant. His work, the market, my mother's disease. I can find excuses, if I try hard enough. I had put Wednesday in the household diary, in red capitals, underlined. We went to Chez Bruce. Philip once said it's handy to have a local bistro with a Michelin star. Oh, how I laughed. When I was growing up, I told him, a Vesta chow mein was a treat. But what a waste of a Cornish Pollock and a pea tortellini. They could have kept their trompetti garnish and their lardo de colonnata and given extra portions to someone else. Philip was too busy on his blackberry to eat, and I just toyed self-consciously, feeling sorry for the waiters, wishing I had brought a book. I shouldn't have mentioned Brighton. His mood was wrong. It's just a wedding anniversary, he said. Take a rain check, Gabs. We'll go another time when things let up. Things never let up. That's the problem. It's all work. Even teeing off on the shores of the outer Firth of Clyde is work. Lying next to him now in bed, I launch into a satisfying internal monologue. I'm going to go mad, waiting for things to let up. They will be ushering me into my nursing home, and I'll still be muttering about things letting up. I must release a heavy sigh, because Philip opens his eyes. There's a fraction of a second when his eyes hook into mine, and then his brain registering the fact he is awake slide away. He props himself on one elbow. Gabby, he says to the top of my head. Gabs, what a thing to happen. I can't believe it. He throws his spare arm round my shoulders. His chin rests on my scalp, and I bury my face into his neck. I have that sneakily self-righteous feeling you get when a person close to you hasn't been around when you needed them. His top smells of basil and lime. I try and remember when he started dressing for bed. A present from his parents, whom, Lord, I still haven't rung, crisp cotton in innocuous dark checks from Savile Row, but still, the wild, unfettered Philip I married in cosy, comfy, conventional pyjamas. I give the soft crease between his collarbone and his neck a nuzzle, not quite a kiss, but a tug of lip on skin, nothing too humiliating if turned down. His body is firm under his shirt. The second button has come undone, and I resist the temptation to run my hand beneath it over his naked chest. He pulls away and leans across to smile at me. Tea, that's what you need, and a lie-in. I'll bring up the papers. I expect Millie is already up, I say, after a beat, watching telly. I'll pop a Weetabix into her and I'll be back. I want you to tell me everything. He kisses the top of my head and levers himself off the mattress. He won't be as quick as he promises because he never resists a lunge at the punching bag, a pound of the treadmill. Philip's brain is extraordinary. He can commute a line of figures in milliseconds, 
can construct a complicated investment multi-strategy from an array of quantitative variables without breaking a sweat. Do I sound as if I know what I am talking about? I don't. To his individual investors, to the American owners, he is the hedge fund. That I do know. I've always known his mind was wired differently from mine. He is pathologically calm, meticulously thoughtful. I have never seen him make a rash decision, appear flustered, see red, but he can also be obsessive. Pete Anderson, a guy he worked with at Numura, once told me, Philip lives and breathes other people's money. I was appalled at the time, a life reduced to pounds and pence not even his own. But I've thought about it since, and it's not quite right. The synapses in his brain may thrill to the vagaries of the market, but his body has its...